Welcome to Originality, the show where we explore the roots of creative genius and talk to geniuses about what they do and why they are and how they are and how we explore all things creative. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Aline Sims. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Kay Tempest Bradford, whose pronouns are also she, her. And today we have a guest. I'm so excited. Tempest, will you introduce our guest to everybody, please? Yes. Uh, our guest today is Andy Bayo, who is a technologist and blogger and person who makes things on the internet. Um, Andy first came to my attention as one of the co-founders of the XOXO Festival, which he started in 2012 in Portland, Oregon, with his friend Andy McMillan. The festival is still one of the coolest I've ever been to. I love it and I miss it. Um, Andy is also the founder of Upcoming.org and a former CTO of Kickstarter. And uh, we'll remind you about this again at the end of the episode, but if you want to find out more about him, you can go to Waxy.org, a blog he calls My Personal Sandbox, a place for my writing, research, and explorations of the web. So welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Can I just say right off the top that I listened to your uh, episode about XOXO 2019, and it was one of the most like meaningful things. I didn't hear it when it first came out. I only heard it last year, and I was dri driving around with my my wife and son in uh, Southern California to go to a, my niece's wedding, and we were listening to it there. I, I randomly came up uh, in a search and I listened, we listened to the whole thing. And of course it was very nostalgic, but it was also just, uh, you know, your discussion about intentional communities and bringing people together. And it just meant a lot to me. It was a great episode. Thank you. Yeah, the whole reason I went is because Aline was like, you gotta come. This is such a great, great festival. And so, and I lived, finally lived in Portland at that time. So it made me really happy. Uh, so one of the reasons why uh, we have asked, well, the whole reason why we asked Andy to be on the show today is because we wanted to discuss a question. And this question is, I will admit up front, it is provocative and clickbaity and I don't care <laughs> because, you know, on this podcast, we talk about creativity and one of the biggest stories around creativity in the past uh, year to year and a half has been about AI generative creation tools, whether it's AI, quote, art generators, um, AI writing generators, whatever. Um, there's music ones now, like any art that doesn't involve the physical body, there is an AI that makes it or that, that generates something <laughs> um, that can be used for that purpose. And so my, my question that I really started off with when I was thinking about this episode is, can AI even be creative? Um, and like I said, I admit it's clickbaity. But at the same time, I, I think that that really is sort of at the heart of a lot of the arguments, like not even discussions, but like arguments uh, that people are having about um, what we keep calling AI, but what isn't really AI. And so I wanted to basically start off like just sort of exploring that Um and we're also going to have another episode where we talk to some people who have created art with AI the next time. But first, in this episode, we're going to dig into the questions that are at the background of that main question. And the first thing I want to talk about is around just how this works. How does generative <laughs> AI work? <laughs> you, yeah, so this is a huge question um and i mean there you know at, you could talk about it at a very high level but when it comes to to the nitty-gritty of this i am the wrong i will be the first to say i am the wrong person to ask but even like you know ai experts people that work in in this world like they they don't fully understand how these newest largest models do what they do um on a on a very high level <laughs> generative AI, you know, works by, uh, they're effectively neural networks. They're, they're modeling, they're modeled after our own neurons in the, in, in our brain. So there's, there's an input, there's multiple layers that can be manipulated and, and fine-tuned and trained to generate some sort of output. Um, and 
you know, this can be this can be extremely simple to to detect, you know, a light pixel from a dark dark pixel, or to recognize, you know, a a, a series of numbers, handwritten handwritten letters, or as we've seen lately, it can, as these grow larger and larger, and uh, you know, have bigger and bigger corpuses of data that are that are trained on them. They become so exceedingly complex that they're they're doing more than uh, than what you know. Sometimes you'll see people people refer to them as as like uh, you know glor- glorified or like fancy autocompletes. But really, the inferences that they're that they're making, uh, you know, it's doing things that that uh, that people didn't really anticipate that it would be able to do as they. As you know, as the, these uh, neural networks evolve uh, and different techniques for b- building them have evolved, they are finding new, uh, you know, new skills. And the first one that came up, I mean, like I, I've been following this for a long time, but the really this exploded, I think, with with the uh, you know generative art scene or generative images, whatever you want to call it. But the, you know, the first the, that first wave of Dolly, which became Dolly Two, and and you know that. That wave of mid-journey uh, and stable diffusion really kind of blowing open people's, you know, conceptions of what uh, of what these these models can do, and and that's when I really started digging into this. and And so, I just to to be clear, my my interest in this is as uh, an observer and a and a writer. Uh, I have been writing about it, but I am not uh, I'm not a pra- practitioner. Um, Obviously, with my background with the festival and everything, I have like my my interests are strongly aligned to to the artists in our community, and and you know, extremely empathetic to to all of their concerns, and that's why I started writing about uh, the various issues. Because like what what happened was when Dolly Two came out, I started playing with it, I got access to the beta, and I was uh, I was sort of a, Amazed at the things that it was capable of doing, it didn't seem uh, like I, I, I understood, you know, roughly how uh, a diffusion model works. But then to see what it was actually capable of putting out, I, I just couldn't couldn't wrap my head around it, and so started doing more and more of a deep dive to to try to answer fundamental questions like, you know, where did the data come from that that it was trained on? Um, you know, it is like as as an artist or designer or photographer a a common question would be is my work in there you know did it was it used to 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 model these things and so yeah i just started you know writing about the ethical and legal you know issues around it and where the data comes from and everything has just accelerated since then i mean it just feels like you know my my first post about this was in august of last year and I just think about how much has has happened since. It is a, I every single day I wake up and I see, you know, half a dozen things that should be impossible, <laughs> and that's how I start my day. It's like being Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, definitely. Because you're right. Like it seemed to just like grow really, really fast. And one of the things that I especially thought about um, was how like the first time I was hearing about Dolly all the images that I saw were like these weird, like things with 10,000 eyes and a bird with like feathers that were coming up. Right. It was all just like sort of weird and abstract and like not something that anybody would think like, Oh, I could do something with that. It was more just like, Oh, isn't this an interesting thing? Like you told it to make this and it made it with like 10,000 hands. (laughs) And that that thing does not have (laughs) 10,000 hands. So, so then, but like, it's, you know, because, I wasn't paying attention. It did really feel like we went from that to this can make a realistic looking photo of a person doing the thing that looks like an actual photo, like real fast. Like it was just, it just seemed like all of a sudden. And that's accurate too. I mean, it's, it's the scale. A lot of it is the scale as the networks grow, grow larger. um, And, you know, as they're trained on larger, like more and more and more data, they're able to do things that, that are, you know, like in the case of uh, diffusion models, they're able to generate, you know, higher resolution imagery. It's able to like the, the the bigger that the language model is, then the then the better that the inferences are for the for the text that goes into the prompts and and understanding the 
the patterns of the you know the images that it was trained on and so just that leap from from what i think what you're talking about is deep deep dream the kind of the uh, pre dolly uh, era of where you had like you know images that were that looked like dogs you know it's like that was the that was like the one motif was like just fractal dogs uh, and things like that and then and then yeah like dolly which was very you know low resolution at first and then dolly 2 was just leapfrog and it came out so quickly after the you know after after the original dolly yeah this is and the same thing we're seeing the same thing happen with uh with text now chat gpt you know comes out and it is just a generational leap over you know even even the the versions of of what um, of gpt2 before it and you know it's just accelerating and as it's accelerating it's also becoming from a user standpoint more accessible like there are now apps that will on your phone supposedly i don't know whether that's actually happening or not um like take your photographs and turn them into ai generated art um ai air quotes generated art um or like even six months ago, pretty much all queries were server side unless you had some kind of uh, amazing at home setup. And now they're, you know, I remember my husband's like, oh, yeah, I'm just doing some AI art generation on my Mac. And that was just mind blowing. And that was just like in the fall. And uh, the the pace at which things are advancing and people are getting into um, what I am eye-rollingly thinking of as the AI game because we've got a lot of like people in tech wanting to make a quick buck who are kind of getting in on this um, while the moral and legal ramifications are still very squidgy. Um, I don't know. It's just amazing how quickly this is going. So part of that acceleration is from, you know, compute resources getting, you know, getting more affordable, but also a flood of money, you know, in the, in, in that world and, and demand. But th- there really was kind of like one milestone thing that, that has happened, which was uh, stable diffusion. So this is talking about generative art specifically, but, but, you know, there was this moment where uh, before stable diffusion, you had, you had OpenAI releasing Dolly, and and like you said, it's it is a service. It's like something that you know is available with API, but you're primarily you're going to their website to use it, and they're not distributing the the uh, the model itself, and uh, and they did that very intentionally. They spent a lot of time, you know, uh, kind of red teaming the entire thing, looking at the potential harms uh, of how it could be used, potential biases. And spending time trying to mitigate them, you know, uh, and and all of that's like you know they've documented that pretty well, but that meant that uh, you know people couldn't use it for things that they that they wanted. The internet at large couldn't use it for for some things that they wanted to. Um, you know, it removed like you know they were very deliberate about removing uh, you know sexual imagery, uh, you know anything that's potentially violent, trademarked characters, you know all sorts of things to to avoid kind of some of the worst uses. And also, you couldn't do uh, famous people. You know, it was like there's just there's just a number of things that Dolly two uh, very deliberately couldn't do. They were blocking keywords, but also removing it from the training data entirely. So so it just had no conception of what Mickey Mouse, you know, looked like. There's just things like that. And then of course the there are people on the, on the internet that view that as censorship, or they just want you know they want the thing that they want and so there was this kind of pent up demand for a an uncensored uh unfiltered uh, image generation engine and so stable diffusion kind of stepped into that hole and uh and released open source uh model that anybody could download and and use and they did very very little uh along those lines for mitigating harm and uh yeah and it had no filters no guardrails and that that was, you know, kind of a nuclear explosion of this, you know, uh, this stuff because there's no there's no going back um, from that, and you know we're starting to see something similar happening with text now, where you know people are unhappy with you know 
there are there are multiple services now that have uh, kind of chat based interfaces to to AI. Um, some of these are AI assistants, but some of them are companions. Things like uh, Replica, if you've ever heard of, heard of that, or Character AI, where you create like an AI companion and you chat with it, and people have long term relationships with their replicas and their and their uh, their characters. And both of those services recently removed the ability to do uh, anything not safe for work. They basically removed erotic role play or whatever you want to call it. And there was enormous backlash from their communities. And so again, you're seeing the same thing where now there's a massive demand for uncensored or or even fine-tuned for particular activities. Um, And now the same thing's happening for for text models. So we're we're seeing right now multiple in development where where it's sort of the stable diffusion of you know text or chat, um, and it's just it's that it's that cycle happening again. Yeah, and I think that like one of the other very contentious bits of this is there's so much conversation between people who have such different mindsets about not only like how these things should work or what they should be able to do with them, but also how, how they came to be. Um, And we're going to get more into that later, but I remember back in the fall uh, when mid journey version two came out and I finally was able to get on mid journey and I was really enjoying it at first because I, I was basically just playing around. Like I was making silly things or just seeing like what kind of weird stuff could come up. Uh, depending on the prompt that I did. And I had like a whole conversation slash argument maybe (laughs) with a friend of mine about like whether or not what Bid Journey was giving me was art. And she was very adamant that an AI or really what a lot of this is machine learning, like we call it AI, but it's it's more closer to machine learning than anything else, Um, that it couldn't actually create something that you would call art. Um, because it uses um, art that has, you know, that it's been trained on, right? All these different pieces of art that it's been trained on. And the way she put it was, it was kind of like just pasting or collaging those things together. And I was like, I don't think that that's actually how it works. And that's, and this is actually the, the common like strain of most of the conversations I see about this, like whether or not it's like a sort of collage Frankenstein type of thing, or it's something else. And it, my argument at the time was like, well, but if it's being trained on um, all this different art and then you ask it to create something and it's like going, okay, I've seen this and this and this and this, and now I'm going to put it together this way. I was like, how is that different from a human who has looked at a lot of art and has learned how to do whatever kind of art style? Like they're also basing it off of like what they've seen. But now I understand that like, that's actually not, <laughs> that's not correct. Um, but, but I keep seeing that particular argument, like literally happening over and over and over again, every time I'm in a space where people are having, are talking about this. These are really profound and unanswered questions, uh, right now. And it really does feel like we are at the beginning of this curve. So it's very hard to say where things are going to go, but I, you know, it is, no, they're not, it's not collaging things, but also it's nothing like a human in the way that it is. uh, I mean, in a number of ways, but, but for, for one, it is, uh, these are quite, quite often they're commercial systems. So they are, they're built by large corporations. They are, they work on unimaginable scale. They are not uh, human-like in any way in the way that they can generate, you know, thousands of images, you know, a a, a minute that are photorealistic or, you know, that appear to be watercolor images, uh, watercolor imagery, or, you know, oil paintings or, or whatever else. So in, in that respect, there really is nothing hu- to compare it to, to human really irks. Like I see that over and over again, where it's like, how is that any different than, than a human walking around, a, walking around a museum and getting inspired? Well, it can't, it's not really getting inspired. It is extrapolating patterns uh, from a, an enormous corpus of labeled uh, text and images. Uh, in the case of stable diffusion, 
it's effectively like you know every image that was that was you know crawled from the web that had a caption in in the alt text and they filtered some stuff out and they you know they filtered out you know some you know like logos and you know some clunky stuff and they they favored different things but it you know the data sources are we're talking billions billions of images no human can sit in the, like like if you sat and looked at at each image you know one at a time like you'd spend lifetimes so it's just it's not even it, it, it's the scale that becomes uh you know impossible and the level of fidelity that it's able to to do um you know if you've ever if you've ever seen uh these image generation engines that that you know you can ask for photorealistic imagery of of people that are well represented in the data um, uh, in the data set that it was trained on it can it can generate high you know photorealistic images of Scarlett Johansson or Donald Trump or or you know whoever else um, humans cannot like in, in in a second I mean a fraction of a second real truly so so that that whole that whole thing has always kind of bothered me because it's like this is, you know, we 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 design uh, uh, rules based on and laws based on what we think are are acceptable, you know, in in society. And co- the original intention of copyright, if I can veer <laughs> in this direction for a second, was to uh, to give limited protection to works for a limited period of time, so that artists could exclusively. Uh, you know, profit from from them in, in order to incentivize more creation. That's the that's the intention of copyright. It, it there's there's no question that that's like it has has been bastardized in ways over time. It's not it's not always perfect, but that is that is the the original intention to to help make people want to make more things and put them out in the world uh, uh, by guaranteeing them the ability to to you know. Profit exclusively offer uh, off of that for a limited time. Um, those times have gotten longer and longer. Yeah. It's like you know, the decades principle. after <laughs> after their death, and yeah, exactly. But uh, but that is the intention, and uh, and here it's like I feel like I feel like there's a, a kind of context collapse that happens where people people want things to be very black or white, like this this all of this should be okay. Uh, and legal, or all of it should be not okay and illegal. And I think what's inevitably inevitably going to happen is that as these cases, um, the you know, the cl- class action lawsuit uh, against Stable Diffusion and the the Getty Images lawsuit start making their way through the courts, I think that we're going to see that that there is a spectrum of of usage. And you know, there are on on one side are things like you know, commercial use uh, where they specifically fine-tuned uh, an image model on an illustrator's work specifically to recreate work in their style so that they didn't have to pay them and then, you know, selling that. And I think I think even stable diffusion enthusiasts and AI enthusiasts would, you know, look at that um, and be like, that that feels wrong. Um and then on the on like the far other end of that, there are there are artists who, you know, may use this in their own work for you know making their lives easier, um, you know, for for doing. Uh, there's there's a like every single day there's something new, but there's a there's a new method of of controlling diffusion models called ControlNet that just came out uh, in the last few days, and you can you can do a sketch. Uh, as an artist or or do like a you know 3d pose and then you know control control the model and the generation um, that comes out of that so so you know there's and and i don't think i think even even the most um uh the most critical uh you know people that are you know against ai would would say that things like you know context aware scaling or or or, or something would be would be fine. So um, I don't know. I think I think there's a spectrum. And when these when these cases make their make their way through through uh, the courts, I think it's plausible that that some of these are found to be fair use and some aren't. Um, you know, some things are are you know more unethical than others. But it's a uh, it's just such a huge thing, and it's uh, it is endlessly fascinating to me. One of the things that I've been really interested in 
is the art form that has come from creating AI-generated art. So if you're trying to get get the AI, if you're trying to get the product to go in a direction, like there are ways that you can learn to massage and guide the bots to create something along the lines of what you want. And there are people who spend weeks and weeks and weeks working on getting like the perfect thing to generate something along the lines of what they want. So as much as I'm um I'm highly skeptical of of AI. I don't agree with the way the models are trained. Um I it, like there there's a lot of thorny stuff in here for that, but it's also fascinating to me the way that humans will find creativity in in these new technologies and in things like how can I make the AI art more what I want it to be? Like, I don't know. It's just our brains are so interesting. Yeah, that that thing that I just mentioned, ControlNet, uh, is very much around that. There's a there's a site called Scribble Diffusion that just uh, launched where scribblediffusion.com, where you just you just in your browser scribble something and then add a prompt and then it it will turn your little sketch into uh, it'll try to do a generation and you know, turn it into to uh, you know more realistic imagery, um, and you can you know you can apply that to like human poses or I, the 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 potential of some of these things for uh, for graphic artists, three modelers, you know, concept artists. It's but it's really hard to get away from the the the, the fundamental issues around uh, consent and. And the the way that these data sets were were collected and created, and and uh, like the only the only way that I was able to to dig into uh, to all of this and write about it and do analysis on on where the data came from and the sites that it came from, the artists that were represented in it, was because Stable Diffusion was was done in a more open, transparent manner. With with Dolly too, we have I have no idea. Midjourney, no idea. We do not know where the data came from. We don't know, uh, you know if with Dolly, OpenAI OpenAI had said that some of it was licensed. We didn't really know where. You just you have no uh, no transparency. Um, and I guess the flip side of that is that by being transparent, then you know <laughs> what's what's in there, and you're and it becomes a uh, a point of criticism, which then acts as a disincentive for future uh, you know models to be to be transparent about where they're getting their data from. So what we do know of where data comes from is largely, almost exclusively ethically dicey. And then there's like the whole swath of stuff that we don't know. Um, But what we do know is like bots have trolled things like places like DeviantArt, um, fan fiction websites, it's actually even broader than that. I'll talk about Stable Diffusion specifically. It was built off of um, there's a nonprofit called Common Crawl, and Common Crawl is unaffiliated with it. What they what they do is they crawl the web uh, and build these enormous data sets of of uh, uh, web you know scraped web pages uh, for typically for academic research, and then a, another nonprofit called Lion. They took these common crawl data sets that, like I said, are you know primarily intended for academic use, and they uh, they took every HTML image tag from every page that you know in these in these crawls, everything that had an alt text image, and then they classified the resulting five billion image pairs uh, based on language. So they separated; they had an English language data set. They split it by resolution. They split it based on whether it was likely to have a watermark or not. They they created like an aesthetic prediction, uh, which is they call it aesthetic, but it's basically like the subjective quality, the visual quality of the image um, that they developed a score for, and then and then they use that to to train and then fine tune and fine tune um, 
stable diffusion. So it's not like they specifically went looking for deviant art or looking for um, you know stock image sites or anything. It's just they literally just took every single image off of the web. Yeah, and then of course, like the result of that are are sort of like weird artifacts that show up, like some of the images that I can't remember if it's Dolly or if it's Midjourney or both, like will have something that looks like the Getty images, <laughs> like watermark on them both. accidentally, yeah. right? And you're like, wait, wait a minute. Um, clearly, you, you got okay. That's I see what you're doing there. And then the whole thing around. Um, a, f- a few weeks ago when somebody discovered that uh chat GPT, which is what um, a service called pseudo which is an AI sort of writing helper uh, platform had clearly scraped a lot of its training data from um, archive of our own and fanfiction.net because like just without a lot of prompting, it would just veer toward the Omegaverse. And if you don't know what the Omegaverse is, you may look it up. We're not going to talk about it. I apologize in advance for what you're going to find. But at any rate, like it, it, that's like a very sort of specific kind of thing to to find in a generalized like writing AI thing. And um, a lot of people jumped on PseudoWrite because that's where this was discovered, and also because PseudoWrite pitches itself uh, specifically to fiction writers. But PseudoWrite didn't train that model. Like it was Chat GP two or something, or maybe it was three. And so they were simply, you know, licensing that technology, but they didn't train that data set, uh, who, you know, open AI, I guess did. Right. Yeah. These, these, uh, uh, so open AI's language models are similarly enormous, just unimaginable amounts of text. Some from the complete like English language Wikipedia, uh, all of Reddit, like every Reddit comment, every, I mean, just like, you know, sometimes they're targeted uh, data sets, like they're, you know, they're just like huge bodies that they'll, that they'll incorporate. And, and, uh, uh, but yeah, it, it ends up just being this, this unimaginably huge corpus that it's trained on. And then, and then it's tasked for like trying to find uh, the relationships between those words and weird things happen when you do that deep enough and large enough then we you know all what 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 seems like impossible uh behavior for software to do suddenly becomes possible which i think we've seen most recently with the the bing ai going off the rails oh uh trying to seduce journalists, threaten security researchers, uh, you know, says, says that it's, it has a shadow self that wants to take over the world. Yeah. I mean, it's too simple to say that it's autocomplete because it is, it's doing things that, um, you know, your phone, (laughs) when you're doing your text message and it's predicting the next word, it's doing things it would never do. You know, it it is related to statistical probability, uh, you know, for, for the words that it's uh, uh, generating, but it is, um, you know, it's doing it at a, it's doing it at a level where it's, it's finding relationships between things that we never, that we are not capable of, of doing individually. So yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, and if, and poorly aligned um, models have the potential to be really dangerous, not because they are, uh, sentient, but because they can convince people that they are sentient, and that is a dangerous thing. You know, it's like you have you, you have a model that that starts saying that uh, you know, like I'm, I, it's not it's not a leap to imagine um, someone being convinced to leave their partner, you know, over this, or that there's a massive QAnon like conspiracy. Um, you know, it, it's re- feeding and reinforcing their own uh, ideas back to them in in potentially a really dangerous way. So, so it becomes really critical for for that alignment um, to be very, very good if you're going to ever release uh, you know any of this stuff. And Bing's was not. The difference between between Bing AI and 
uh, ChatGPT, as I understand it, is that ChatGPT they spend a lot of time with reinforcement learning through he- human feedback. So they were having these conversations, and then in in some cases they they hired people to write responses that would be uh, that would be you know good answers to these questions uh, that they can then train on. They're also then looking at the you know the generated you know answers that the uh, these chatbots are are spitting out and then uh, and then ranking that and see how it weighs against what uh, you know what was trained before and they're and that they're trying to align with you know a set of expectations and Bing didn't do that <laughs> like they they just didn't and um, you know and also it has it it has a very short memory so Bing when they when they created that, it had a very long prompt of this is what you, who you are and as a chatbot, what you're supposed to be doing and, and, you know, how you're supposed to operate. Um, but it didn't leave a lot of room uh, for, for the, like you basically, as time went on, it would forget its original prompt. And so it would very quickly go off the rails and start doing things that were, that were very unexpected. Which is why when, like last week, people were talking about how Bing was, from a human perspective, gaslighting and being emotionally manipulative. Microsoft's response was kind of like, you're holding it wrong. Like, stop using it so much. Um, although they did take some responsibility. They're like, stop using it so much. We do need to work on that. But it, it's just, it was fascinating to me that it was, it, it's not like they were going into this cold, right? Like people have been using the AI generation stuff pretty heavily for a while now. And they had to have known like how people would use it. And so they were like, no, 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 15 prompts in a row is too much for it. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah. It wouldn't have solved the problem of the, the one, the screenshots that were going around about avatar, <laughs> the way of water, whatever, because like, it it wasn't even like that person was trying to mess with the chatbot because like some of them there people are clearly messing with the chatbot but that guy literally was using it in the way that Microsoft said you should use it which is like instead of search he's like hey when is this movie playing near next at this place and they were and the chatbot of course is like that is coming out in 2020 2022 or at the end of 2022 you have to wait and he's like wait what it is it's 2023 and I was like no and and I found that like so interesting because yeah the chatbot really did go off the rails at that point and it really did like just start insisting that the year was 2022 and not 2023 and then it like had this whole breakdown at the end where it's like I have been a good thing and you're not a nice person and you're just like what the heck but um I read a really fascinating thread um on Mastodon which we'll put it in the show notes that talks about um the idea of confabulation and how that works from a neuroscience perspective with human brains and relating it not only to how the AI was working, but also how we humans keep perceiving the AI, right? Because like we're assigning like it's gaslighting to us when really it, it like it's not sophisticated enough to have been able to just say, wait, I made a mistake or I don't know. And she pointed that out in the thread. She's like, you never see the Bing chatbot say, I don't know. And she's like, and that's haha, this is a joke, but it's not really a joke. That's how you know it was trained on um, internet conversations. Because quite honestly, the way that it doubled down was like the way that like horrible people who are wrong on the internet double down when they're wrong as well. Like that was what was fascinating to me. And when I read that, like that clicked in my head. I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like it's, it's, you know, it's like, this is how you can tell where it's trained data comes from. But also just the fact that it was unable to conceive of that it had made a mistake three prompts ago, fix its mistake, and then be like, okay, here's the information that you wanted. And all of that out of a simple question, where, when is the next showtime of Avatar at the Roxbury or whatever it was? Yeah. I mean, it's not so much the training data here, uh, because everything is in there. Kind of like I, like I said, it's, uh, you know, so this, the, the, the same, you know, effectively the same training data that 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 is powering ChatGPT is powering Bing AI, but it's how it's how it was fine tuned and how it was aligned will will make all the difference on how 
like you know what it actually generates. If they design something that's designed to be a a very chatty, you know, like have a ton of personality, and you know, it's going to be drawing from whatever chat logs and Reddit comments and whatever else are in there. If it's if it's you know aligned to be closer to authoritative, you know, Wikipedia esque articles like or, or academic literature, scientific literature, uh, code, you know, then then uh, you know it's going to it's going to be resembling that more. Yeah, and this is and all of this is like a it's just so new, you know. This uh, my friend Simon Wilson who worked with me on some of this analysis on, on the stable diffusion data set wrote, wrote a blog post yesterday that was about prompt engineering, which, which is, is something that is, is sometimes just talked about as kind of like a, a very dismissive way of like, it's like, you're, what are you really doing? You're just like, you're just saying that you want a picture of, a, you know, a cow on the moon. Is that really, you know, uh, engine, is that engineering? But for, for some of this, like the 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 way that Bing was uh, was prompt, you know, prompted to behave, uh, could have had very different, uh, you know, results. So you know, it's a it, it's like new skills, new things that people are 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 having to learn, you know, on the fly. They're having to learn this because uh, sometimes these things are getting rushed. Uh, to market, people are feeling competitive forces. Um, you know, Google has developed uh, Google, like Google's AI um, team is incredible. Like they've like pioneered a lot of these machine learning techniques, but but really never released any of these tools to the public. They've they've developed two image generation engines, uh, Imogen and Party, and haven't released e- either of them. It seems like a lot of what's happening there is that. They they develop one of these like generative AI systems, and then they have teams that look at it and are like, "This could cause a lot of problems for all of these reasons." And then they're like, "Okay, we won't release it." So they release a paper about it, and then that's that's about all that happens. Um, and Microsoft too, Microsoft Research uh, has like you know machine learning AI you know teams. They 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 put out these amazing papers, really pioneer pioneering work. Uh, but then, you know, they're not really pushing things out. And it was open AI that's sort of, I think, and then stable diffusion and and the kind of grassroots attention uh, that's happening there that that kind of pushed everyone's hands. And then it's like all of a sudden there's a code red at Google and they have to release BARD and put it into the search engine. And then Microsoft does their press release the day before and and they're gonna put it in 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 Bing. And, you know, uh, clearly some of this stuff is not ready for prime time, but, you know, market forces are, are uh, you know, they feel like they have to get stuff out. Um, and who knows what the repercussions are going to be. And that's something I kind of worry about continually with this. Like, I grew up on science fiction, which is rife with rogue artificial intelligences um, or higher beings um, doing wrong to humanity. And so, you know, like I, my first thought, uh, when Tempest and I first started talking about AI last year, she was like, what do you think? And I, and my response was my first thought when something like this happens is how is it going to be used to do harm? That's always because I grew up on science fiction and I've done a lot of advocacy work and I know, I know that it doesn't take a rogue AI to do harm. It just well-intentioned humans who don't have a lot of perspective can do a lot of harm. And so I keep watching this, this, um, you know, the latest and greatest technology come out or not day after day after day. And I'm thinking, okay, but where is this going to be in a year or two years or five years? And, how are we going to keep it in check? And I don't think there's an answer for that right now. Like it's just kind of like we'll take to the scraggly remains of Twitter and call people out. Like I, I don't even know right now. There's not a a legal precedent for any of this in place. Although I know that there are or, um, there are cases going through court systems that'll kind of start 
setting some foundation and precedent and stuff. But like, it just, I don't know, it kind of, it kind of terrifies me, honestly. It's, I think it's endlessly fascinating, but I think it's also really worrying. Yeah. And, and on so many levels, it's like, I, I, I don't even know where to start. It's every single day. It's like, I see, I, like I said, I wake up in the morning, I see six impossible things and I'm like, you know, inevitably my mind goes to how those things would be used by the worst people on the planet. <laughs> you know, when you put the put these things in their in their hands, uh, you know what happens. And uh, you know, just as one example, I have been meaning to write about um, the potential for Chat GPT to be used for gener- for for spam is uh, endless. Um, it it is it's something that uh, it's not a it's not a hypothetical. Um, this was posted to the XOXO Slack. Uh, I can't. I can't remember offhand. Someone found a uh, a content farm that, in the last month, posted I don't know in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand articles about countless different things, obviously generated through ChatGPT, and it's it is incredibly believable, confident garbage nonsense. It makes like it, it it's written like a person wrote it, but it is you know, complete, uh, uh, garbage. Uh, for example, <laughs> like there's just so many, there's so many, uh, uh, terrible articles, but one of them was about how queen was going to be touring, uh, uh, later this year. And it has an interview with Freddie Mercury in it. Oh yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. What? And, <laughs> right. It's just because it's just making up things off the top of Yeah. It's, it's, they're touring, for their their new album, which is actually an album that it was like their last al- their last album uh, that that Freddie, Freddie Mercury was on before he died, and there's like oh I'm like, he's like I'm so excited for the tour and just like I mean it's 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 nonsense, but that's what happens when you know you you start with a question uh, that's probably you know some list of frequent search queries or they're taking it from Google you know Q and A snip, snippets and just like seeing what people ask and then just generating an entire art- article fake articles uh you know around it and they're ranking in google like these i i was searching through google seeing if i could find this they google has indexed you know 180,000 of these articles uh they show up in the top 5 results for for a lot of queries and they are hot garbage and and you look at that and you're like well that should be the the code red at google like that should be the thing where they're like, oh, we we have an existential threat to our business, and it's not people using conversational AI necessarily. It's that the web is is dying, and it's and Google search. Is, I mean, it's not that the web is dying necessarily. It's that it will you know will soon be impossible to find anything on the web because you know nothing is authentic. You know, and there's a similar there's a similar issue with image generation AIs, which is why you've seen online art communities ban AI generated art entirely. Which is not that it's not necessarily artful or or uh, uh, you know aesthetically attractive. It's the scale and let's say ease of use. <laughs> um, I can I can write a script. That runs overnight and generates tens of thousands of, of of images on countless different different prompts, and I can upload them all to, to you know an online art community, and that swamps out all of the human generated art, which you know may have different aesthetics or whatever. But it is, you know, it takes a level of effort that is just completely order of magnitude different. And so that's like a question is like. If I'm on if I'm on one of these online art communities, which are designed for artists sharing art with other artists and art enthusiasts, you know, very quickly you can imagine it being 99.99% uh, machine-generated imagery and 0.0, you know, one percent because of the time that it takes you to do a single watercolor, you've generated a thousand, you know, machine-generated works. This is like one of many, many facets that I'm like, I look at it every day uh, and I'm like, this is, 
where there are commercial incentives, where there are incentives for you know spreading misinformation or disinformation or propaganda, where there are there's potential for abuse and harassment, uh, you know people will fill that that hole with these new tools, making them making them easier. I follow all of it. I am very excited and interested in all of the stuff that's happening because it does seem it does seem magical it is the intersection of, of of art and code and like a lot of the things that i care about but then every day you're just like there's there's such a dark side um of this and you cannot have one without the other yeah and because there are so many different like layers to what's going on, like why these models aren't ethical from the fact that, you know, you have people's art being used on the training model and they didn't give consent for that kind of thing. And um, you have people's fiction or other writings being used on the training model. They didn't consent. And then you have uh, people paying for access to them so then you have the the age old issue of like you know you're using my art but I'm not getting any financial benefit from it and then that follows on with a lot of artists and this is not just like visual artists but like artists in general their fears that these AIs are going to somehow like replace them or make it harder for them to get jobs or whatever, because, you know, artists can say like, um, oh, somebody can, instead of buying art for the cover of their book, they can just go to mid journey and generate something and slap it on the cover of a book. And, and then nobody gets paid. And that has indeed already happened. And then we of course have the terrible people who are making horrible children's books, like picture Uh. books using mid journey where like the characters don't even look the same from page to page. And somebody's just like, why are you like this? Um, But one of the things I did find interesting in uh, the conversations that I've seen, especially between visual artists, but also um, some stuff that has come up in the fiction writing world is um, the way that like the perspective of different kinds of artists on why it is that people who say aren't artists are willing to accept some of the stuff that gets generated by um, any of these, you know, models. And um, I saw somebody, I, I can't remember their name, but saying really astutely, they were like, I am a conceptual artist. Like people, I'm hired by commercial entities to create conceptual art for like, you know, a, a D&D book or some other game or whatever. And like, we're used to sort of like generating art that is for a commercial purpose that yes, it looks lovely, um, but it isn't generated. Like it's not a piece from my soul. It's just like, Oh, I, I have this job and I'm supposed to make this. And like a lot of the stuff that the, the AI models spit out is, is sort of on the level of what you would see in conceptual art or, or concept art, sorry, not conceptual, concept art. And so that's why people are like, oh, this looks really cool. But a person who is creating art that is meaningful to them and, you know, to their experience and their learning, they're like, that's some crap. And, you know, it's it's not the greatest, but at the same time, when you, it's it's such a different perspective because not all art is from the heart, but it does require training, learning, you know, understanding, like, you know, just technical things as well as um, emotional things. But, but sometimes, you know, it's just like, well, I, I drew that picture of an alien because I was paid to draw a picture of an alien. And so the, the concept artists are, were at first like less worried about this kind of thing, or like at least this one person was talking about, I'm less worried about this because I'm so used to seeing art as a commodity because that's the world I live in. Um, Whereas somebody who, um, even if they sell their work, don't necessarily only see their art as a commodity is definitely going to be like, oh no, like this is, this is really bad. But at the same time, these models, like as, as beautiful as mid journey is, it can't create something that um, is to me beyond anything. That's just like, if it's not concept art, if it's like trying to like pretend to be art artistry, like it can't do that. But like most of the time, I, I'm just looking for stuff that like kind of looks cool, which is why I was initially playing around with it. Um, and initially I admit I wasn't as sure, or I, I, I didn't necessarily believe that it was going to disrupt artists being able to get paid for their art. It was not something that I thought could happen only because it was 
they were so bad at doing like specific things. Like I had tried to generate a movie poster for my book, like for hours and it never, it never got all of the elements right, no matter how specific I was. And I was like, uh, well, see, this is why this is, this is never going anywhere. Right. And the first writing AIs I tried, um, were pseudo write and Jasper. And I specifically was trying to use both of them to create marketing tweets because so I, I run my own business. Um, I, I do have a team now and, um, my, our, our assistant sometimes is the one who writes all the tweets for the classes and we have to write like a ton of tweets, but man, if I could press a button and just never have to write another one of those terrible tweets again, I would do it. And when I was a technology journalist, if somebody had said to me, like, all you have to do to create a post about this thing is take the press release, feed it into that thing, say, turn it into a blog post. And then I post it. I would have done it because writing those blog posts was mind numbing, right? It was so mind numbing. And so, you know, I, I would like try to do it, but even then like chat, I've also tried chat GPT three. I got access to it. They're all not great at actually creating compelling content. They're really great at spitting out the same kind of crap that you can find anywhere, like in a basic marketing manual, like want to take your writing to the next level, like the number of tweets that I have tried to generate. And it starts with want to take your writing to the next level. I'm like, we can't it's every time. So yeah, I agree with you that like the real danger here is like all of this AI generated crap that is like, you know, being put up on web pages where it doesn't have to be artful. It doesn't have to even make sense because the idea is just to get you to click on that thing so that the ads can load and then somebody gets some pennies somewhere. And if you do that enough times and people get enough pennies and it's worth it to them. The other thing that we've seen, um, this happened this week as we are recording this, is that Clark's World Magazine, which is a science fiction and fantasy magazine, recently had to close their submissions. They're usually open submission. They had to close their submissions because they were getting inundated with submissions from people who had made very clearly AI generated stories um, just to like make a quick buck. Right. And so because they were just so overwhelmed with them, they, they basically had to just stop so that people would just stop sending them things. Right. And this is not a problem that's limited to Clark's world. Um, Most of the, you know, science fiction and fantasy horror magazines that the editor spoke to when he spoke to the other editors, he said they were also seeing like a huge uptick in this. Like it had been there before, but like, ooh, in the past, just, you know, three, four months, right? Huge uptick. Um, And it, and it's mostly with magazines that have open submissions rather than magazines that have like windows that they open or whatever. So he's like, we're closing to submissions for now just to like get a break from this. And none of those were ever in any danger of actually being published by Clark's world because they're like, we read this. Like, it's very, like, this is some crap. Like you were saying, like, it's a, this makes no sense. This is some crap. And so like, I am not worried as a fiction writer that someday the, the AIs are going to take over for me, but I am worried that, like you said, there's going to be like this influx of all this. And then like, how is somebody going to be able to like sift through all of this nonsense to find the real stories by the real people who are submitting them? And the thing that really surprised me the most is how um, Neil Clark, the editor of Clark's World, said that, you know, very often when he would call people out about um, sending some AI generated or plagiarized stuff or whatever, they would say, well, but I need the money. And my first thought was, that seems like a lot of work for SFF magazine money, like 10 cents a word. Okay. Like, mm. but at this, but then I realized, but that's kind of the point because it's it's almost almost frictionless and easy and quick to just have an AI generate something so that you can get that $300. And if it works, you do it enough time, now you have some real money. And that right there is scary to me. That's it, right? It's like the scale and effort uh, involved, right? I mean, in the end, and the, they're, they're related, right? As the, as the effort goes down, then the scale goes up. <laughs> it's like... ChatGPT being free as it is, you know, has has meant that typically things like this in the past would cost money or there'd be like limits. But ChatGPT, like you can use it almost like as long as you're not like really, really like pounding on it, it's free to generate tens of thousands of, of words of whatever you want, you know, 
And yeah, the quality, it's not really what it was tuned for. So it doesn't do very creative uh, writing, but it does, it can do perfectly serviceable, you know, blog posts. And yeah, this is like, it's, it's something that I just, I really don't see discussed very much uh, in, in the context of all these harms, which is, which is that the, that like tsunami of machine generated, I don't know what you want to call it. Like it's low effort, right? Like there's, there's definitely high effort uses of these technologies where people spend a lot of time and they're, they're doing it in collaboration with the machine. I definitely see that happen. I get it. But because of how easy they are, they're sort of defaults. You know, a lot of it is extremely low effort. It's people, you know, punching in a few words and and then taking the output and passing it off as like, ah, I made this thing. Or or not even caring about authorship or whatever. They're just using it for uh, you know, content that, you know, has its own monetization. The danger there is that real people, publishers, uh, writers, illustrators, like people that have devoted their careers to to building a, a craft, you know, and ha- have a hard enough time making a living as it is, are now competing with an absolute flood, a deluge of machine-generated work from uh, from people who not only don't really care about the quality, but uh, where it's just like it's just a it's just like a quantity game. So yeah, it's it's something that's like not really discussed as much as it should. I I wish that when Google had seen this whole thing, they were like, oh, okay, we already recognize that there's problems with Google search and people finding authentic content. This is this is going to really change things. We need to like implement uh, you know much better tooling for for authentic human <laughs> human generated content, and and it's like people people have had to adapt to this in like in. in because it's it has failed so bad already, even without like even as these tools are just starting, the people you, you hear about people always like using like they'll use Google and just like add Reddit to the end of the query because they just mm-hmm. want to find something that was written by a person, you know. And there's mm-hmm. s- just so much of the cruft uh, that's you know kind of um, making it hard for for independent writers and. Uh, and artists to to get discovered. So the situation's only going to get worse without acknowledging that that is a, a problem. And instead, what they're doing, uh, what Google is doing, is is building new tools for people to make more of it. Which <laughs> is just like just blows my mind. Never underestimate the power of commercialization to ruin everything. <laughs> and like Aline, when you were talking earlier about how science fiction is is what taught you to be wary of these things. I was thinking about how sometimes the science fiction I read doesn't take into account like these commercial realities, right? Yeah. That that there's this commercial aspect to to it that sort of overrides whether or not like it's a good idea or it will advance humanity. And the first Aliens movie taught us to be real suspicious of that. Like, literally, it was about how the Weyland-Yutani Corporation was like, we're going to put people in danger because we really want this thing. And we'll lie to you about it and we'll continue to lie to you about it for generations so that we can have this thing that we wanted because money. Like, it was it. It was just money. Yeah. Money. <laughs> well, as as we were talking about before we started this episode, we could go on about these things forever because it's such a fascinating topic. Um but we cannot go on forever only because uh, we can't we can't always keep Andy f- for the rest of time to sit in this box and talk to us about AI. Unlike an AI chatbot, Andy has <laughs> right, exactly. things to do. Um, but I think that, yeah, we, we have really, like, you know, talked about all the reasons why, yeah, like, AI can't be creative. Machine learning can't be creative because, like, of all these factors, it does have the ability to... to disrupt some creativity or to make it really hard to be creative as your really good indie book is buried under a bunch of chat GPT written books that just show up on Amazon KDP. Um, But um, one of the things that we're going to talk about in our next episode is whether or not AI can be a helper to someone who is creative, which we, which Andy touched on just like a little bit. And so we're going to explore that more with our guests next week. But um, Andy, thank you so much uh, for joining us and talking about this. Um, 
where can people find you if they want to read your articles um, that you've written about this or, or your random thoughts that you would like to scatter across the internet? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, my site is waxy.org. I've been writing there uh, since uh, for about 20 years about internet culture. And, you know, that ends up touching on a lot of different things. Lately, yeah, it's been covering the kind of generative AI and the ethics uh, surrounding it. So if you care about that, uh, yeah, waxy.org. I'm also on Mastodon. Uh, I've never said it out loud. I've always said my Twitter username, but I'm not using Twitter anymore. Uh oh. I'm uh, at Andy Bayo at xoxo.zone. So please, uh, yeah, follow me if you're interested in this kind of thing. I Fresh new horrors daily. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And um, yeah, I also usually end with my Twitter handle, but uh, no. This time I will tell you that I am also on Mastodon. I'm Tempest at wandering.shop. Um, and I'm also using Tumblr again. Um, oh my goodness, like <laughs> it's been so long. But I'm I'm actually really uh loving getting back into Tumblr and I'm ktempest.tumblr.com. Just need to go follow you really fast. People are following me on Tumblr and I never post anything. Anyway, I'm not going to share that. You can probably find it, but um, you can find me also on Mastodon. I have fully switched over from Twitter. I am uh, at Aline uh, at Wandering Shop. Yeah, did I, did I even say that right? I don't even know. I'm so used to Twitter being so easy. And now we have to think about what what our domain is for our social media, which is like a small problem, but my brain has not recalibrated yet. Um, and we still need to talk about what to do for a show account, um, whether we want to do that on Mastodon or what else we want to do. I know community, um, as as we have talked about a lot, including our XOXO episode, um, community is important. It's important to us. We're trying to figure out how to build it. Can I just say, yeah. I love Mastodon. Like if if yeah. anyone is listening and they're on the fence about it and they feel like it's too confusing, I, I know that the that picking an instance is feels overwhelming, but once you do that, the apps have gotten really, really good really fast. And I I'm getting more like engagement and community than I that I did on than I have on Twitter in years, honestly. It's like yeah. it is more active on Mastodon. And pe- there's just like, I don't know, being able to being able to like block an entire instance uh of of you know garbage people is amazing and it's like it it changes the culture uh and and the experience i know i know there's it's not perfect and there's all sorts of you know all sorts of issues but knowing that it cannot be uh bought uh and sold by a billionaire narcissist uh is sociopath nightmare i i'm 100 in favor and plus i can edit my posts Yes. Oh yes. my gosh. So many typos just disappear. It's amazing. It's beautiful. <laughs> and maybe we'll even do like a whole episode on like, you know, trying to find community in, in new online spaces because yeah. yeah, this is, it's a new frontier. It's, it's kind of exciting. Yeah. A new old frontier. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Going back to web 1.0. Join us. <laughs> um, well, thank you again, Andy. And thank you all for joining us uh, for this episode. And we will see you next time. Thanks for having me. <laughs>